Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. The servant was healed at that very moment. Father, we ask that it might be done to us also as we have believed, that you might deliver to us all the promises that we cling to, the promises that you have made. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This story has always had a special place in my affections because as a boy, it was a favorite of mine and it was a favorite for a very particular reason because it has in it one of the best of all the categories of Bible characters, a Roman centurion. And of course, a Roman centurion is one of the best of the Bible characters because he has the best armor of anyone. It's true, you might point out, that the Egyptian soldiers always have nice chiseled abs. They need to, because they don't have good armor. The Philistines are a little bit better. They have scales and and metal hats, although the design of the hats could have been improved around the facial region. But when you get to the Roman centurion, you have a guy who is arrayed in magnificent, gleaming armor. There's a dignity to a centurion. You may not know this, but in The Greatest Story Ever Told, a a movie from the 1960s about the death of Jesus, the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross is played by John Wayne. So you know centurions have a special dignity to them. Even as adults, theologically, if you're a Gentile who finds yourself in the kingdom, you should thank a centurion namely the centurion Cornelius in Acts 11, who opens the door, as it were, for the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom. It's when called to minister to that centurion that Peter is told by God to call nothing unclean that I have declared clean. But what matters for our purposes is not how we perceive the centurion. What matters for our purposes is how the centurion perceives himself. It may be surprising, but this Roman centurion perceives himself and his place in the world correctly. Not everyone does. The people around him see him wrongly, as we'll see, but he sees himself 
correctly. More importantly than that, he sees Jesus correctly and the place of Jesus in the world correctly. So, as we think about the centurion, we're going to explore three questions. First, what does the faith of this centurion have in common with the faith of the leper that we looked at last time? And then secondly, what does the faith of the centurion teach us about true authority? And then finally, what does the faith of the centurion show us about Jesus' authority? So let's start with the centurion and the leper. What does the centurion's faith have in common with the faith of the leper? If you compare the two men, socially speaking, they seem to be polar opposites, right? One of them is at the bottom of society. The other one is clearly at the top. The centurion is part of the ruling elite. In Capernaum, which is an administrative capital for the region, it's sort of like the Roman seat of government is located, a Roman centurion certainly has an elite status in that place, which led one commenter to write about Chapter 8, after the leper comes a centurion so that an oppressor follows an outcast. We go from an outcast to an oppressor, which is true enough as far as it goes. But we need to dig a little bit deeper to understand what the two have in common. What does the outcast have in common with the oppressor? There are a couple of things when you compare the two passages that should jump out at you. Like the leper, the centurion acknowledges Jesus' authority, and he does it both verbally and physically. He does it with a gesture. We're told the centurion came forward to him. He was a powerful man. He could, by right, have summoned Jesus into his presence, the greater summoning the lesser. But instead, he goes to Jesus. Although, as we'll see when we look at Luke's Gospel, it's a little more complicated than what Matthew tells us, and we'll see that in a moment. But there's a gesture, and there's also verbal recognition. He says that the centurion was appealing to him. So again, a powerful man, but he doesn't command Jesus as the greater commands the lesser. Instead, he appeals to him. He pleads with Jesus to give him this benefit. Like the leper, too, the centurion calls Jesus Kyrie, Lord. It's one thing for a Jewish leper to refer to Jesus, the Messiah, as his Lord. But it's a little bit stranger to see a Roman centurion, a man who represents the emperor, the Roman empire, saying the same thing to him, treating him, addressing him as Lord. And of course, like the leper, The centurion sees himself as unclean. When Jesus offers to go to his house and heal his servants, the centurion says, no, 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 no. I am not worthy for you to enter into my house. He has a consciousness of himself as a Gentile, as one who is unclean. It would defile Jesus in his mind to have to enter into the house of of a man like him. As I say, Luke's account, which is in Luke chapter 7, if you want kind of a comparison, gives us more detail about the way the centurion approaches Jesus. So, in Luke's account, the centurion sends Jewish elders 
And they serve as a kind of letter of introduction. They tell Jesus what a great guy this centurion is and how you really ought to help him out because he's so good. And then Jesus begins the journey to the centurion's house. The centurion finds out Jesus is coming to his house and then he sends servants to stop him and deliver the message that I'm not worthy. Don't come, just say the word. And that's the way Luke explains what this coming looks like. And when you read the two accounts, you may say to yourself, wait a second, does Luke contradict Matthew? Because Matthew says the centurion came to Jesus, but Luke says he sent people to Jesus and didn't come himself. Well, this is one of those instances, I think Matthew would explain, where what's happening is the action is being condensed and summarized. Matthew is describing something in a big picture that Luke breaks out in its tiny little details. So the centurion comes to Jesus in Matthew's account, and Luke explains just what a complicated and groveling approach to Jesus this was. The centurion himself explains it. He says in Luke's account, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Then he adds, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. I did not presume to come to you. Seeing myself for who I am, I wouldn't have dared to just walk up and ask. So I sent people to vouch for me. And when you came, I sent other people to warn you that my house isn't worthy. It's interesting too, though, the Jewish elders, when they go represent the cause of the centurion, they see him differently than he sees himself. They say to Jesus, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Like boyhood Mark, these Jewish elders are impressed. There's a Roman centurion on their side. There's a Roman centurion. He's not like the others. He may be an oppressor, but he's not like the other oppressors. This guy is different. He is worthy of your aid. That's how they see him. But that's not how he sees himself. They don't try to stop him from approaching Jesus. They don't say, you're a Gentile. Jesus isn't here for you. They go on his behalf because they believe he is worthy of this. But he knows himself better than they do. He knows that he's not. He sees himself as he might be seen in the eyes of God as a sinner, unworthy, unclean. There's one more similarity. Like the leper, the centurion knows that Jesus only has to speak a thing, and it is so. That's authority. He knows that Jesus has the authority to make this happen, that he doesn't have to come. He doesn't have to lay hands on the servant. He doesn't have to perform any sort of ritual for this to happen. He just has to say it, and it will be so. That's authority. He even explains why he understands this. I too, he says, am a man under authority. He gives orders to his soldiers and his soldiers carry out his commands. If it's like that for him, then it must be like that for Jesus too. But if you stop to ponder the logic of his response, ask yourself this question. Who does the Roman centurion think Jesus' soldiers are? If the logic here is that one in authority can give the command and his followers obey, they carry it out, 
who would have to be your follower for you to heal a paralytic servant? Would like nature have to be your foot soldier? Would illness have to bow to your will? That's the implication. And if that's his understanding, you can see why he went to Jesus and, and, and addresses him as Lord. and Why he acknowledged his greater authority. Because he saw the forces of creation as the foot soldiers of the Lord Jesus. Jesus describes this as faith. Jesus says, this is faith. But what does the centurion's faith teach us about authority? That's the second question we want to think about. Because when the centurion explains his understanding of authority, Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So there's a connection here between the understanding of authority that this centurion articulates and what Jesus calls faith. Like, he doesn't say, hey, that's a nice speech about authority. You clearly paid attention in civics class or something like that. He sees this as if it were a profession of faith. Why? What's the connection? As I reflect on this question, I think there's something mysterious here. There's a lot of layers to it, and I don't want to oversimplify what's being said. But I think... If we were starting to try to answer that question, we might say something like this, that the faith of the centurion consisted of believing Jesus can do whatever he wills because he is the divine king. In the same way that we can look at Abraham's faith and ask, how is it possible for Abraham to have faith in Jesus when he didn't even know his name? We say, well, Abraham had faith that God would fulfill his covenant promises And Jesus is literally the fulfillment of those promises. And so that's how we can see the continuity. Maybe something similar here. He has a confidence in Jesus' lordship and power, his ability to do what he wills to do, and that is faith. His verbal explanation of authority would back up that interpretation. He's professing confidence in Christ's power. So I think there's a lot of truth in seeing it that way. But consider another layer, another way of answering that question. What if it's not just the centurion's words that demonstrate his faith? What if it's his actions? What if it's what he's doing and how he's living that is wrapped up in Jesus' declaration that this man has a faith that makes me marvel. His actions might be signaled in a word that he uses, a preposition that's a little bit curious. He describes himself as a man under authority. That's not the natural way of expressing what he's trying to say. The way we would ordinarily express that is, I am a man with authority. I am a man who possesses authority. When I tell people to do something, they do it. When I give an order, they carry it out. I'm a man with authority. Right? When he explains what he's trying to say, that's what it sounds like. I give orders, people carry them out. But when he describes himself, he doesn't say, I'm a man with power. He says, I'm a man under authority. I'm a man under that power. 
He's not saying, hey, Jesus, I have something in common with you. You've got power, so do I. You have more power than I do, but I too possess a kind of power, and that helps me understand how you can boss around creation because I boss my guys around too. That's not what he's saying. He says, I'm a man under authority. He describes himself not as one who gives the orders, but one who takes the orders. One who is under authority, or at least someone who's conscious that with authority comes responsibility. That the power entrusted to him is meant to be used in a certain way. This Roman centurion uses his authority in surprising ways. Very surprising ways. This man was sent to rule over the nation. He's an occupier. He's an oppressor. But the elders testify he loves our nation. He was sent here to rule over them, but he loves them. He was sent there to dominate, to make sure they didn't rise up. And he built a house for them to worship in so that they would look and say, this guy is worthy He had used his authority in very strange ways. He'd been given power to oppress the people, and instead he loved them and he served them. That's surprising. His actions in this particular instance exemplify that same spirit of service. The centurion uses his power not for his own need, but for the need of a beloved servant. Here the greater pleads on behalf of the lesser. He does what he does for his servant's sake, an inferior in his household, a man who is meant to serve him, but here the centurion is the one who's doing the serving. That's how he uses his authority. And in order to do that, he has to do something else. He has to humble himself. You can imagine a man in his position might possess a certain amount of pride, But he has to, as it were, go down on his knees. He has to go to Jesus and plead that you would please do this favor for me. He must humble himself. And not just in God's eyes, but in the eyes of society. The men who look up to him, he must send as emissaries to plead for him. With one, he must acknowledge is greater than him. He lowers himself in word and in deed before Jesus, for the sake of his servants. This centurion understood how God's authority works. But he understood more than that. He understood how to use the authority that God gives in order to serve. Yes, he possesses great faith, but as James might say, his faith is being demonstrated by his works. This past week, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, released a study committee report on abuse of authority in the church. It's 220 pages long. I've been working my way through it, and it is a a wonderful document, although it is also a harrowing document, because it uses, it illustrates its points with many examples of the many ways in which authority has been abused and not by other people, but by people in our denomination. At the beginning of that report is a theological explanation for why this abuse should be called out as sin. And it comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism. 
from the Catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments, specifically a section of questions having to do with the responsibility of those in authority towards those they have authority over. How there is a great uh, duty that comes with that authority, to use that authority rightly, and that when we sin against those that we are in authority over, that authority magnifies the offense. It makes it a much more egregious violation than it would otherwise be if we were just equals, side by side. I know that whenever you hear in the news there's been some new church scandal or there's some new report about abuse in the church, it is easy to be defensive about things like that. Sometimes we have a knee-jerk reaction and we want to defend authority. We say to ourselves, our culture is so anti-authority. Like They're always looking for reasons to tear us down. We don't want to trade 2,000 years of Christian understanding for whatever the obsession of our moment, of our generation, happens to be. But consider this. People are anti-authority for a reason. People are against authority and suspicious of authority because authority tends to be abused. When you give power to sinners, they use it to do bad things. It's not surprising that we often react to that reality and say, well, why don't we just take away the authority? Why don't we just do away with the power? If only we could. The reality is, we can't. The reality is, we don't have the power to change reality. We only have the power to be blind to it. We can deny that authority exists, but we can't make it go away. Which means that the best thing you can do in a fallen world, if you're concerned about the abuse of authority, is acknowledge the reality of authority And then, like the centurion, embrace the responsibility that comes with it. When authority is abused, that abuse is an abomination before God. It ought to be exposed. It ought to be condemned. And when we are given authority, we should use it as Christ intends. Use it as the centurion does. This faithful man whose example Jesus praises as an example of faith. We look for lessons in the centurion's faith. We see that whatever authority you have, whatever power is given to you, whether it's office in the church, whether it's your role in your family, at work, wherever it is, whatever power you have, it was given to you. You don't have the power, you are under the power. You are under authority, and it has obligations. Whatever authority you have comes with the need that it be used in order to serve. Authority is given to you to seek the good of others, not yourself. People in authority should provide for others and not just enrich themselves. Above all, if you have authority... That means you must be willing to be humbled on behalf of a servant. To lower yourself, to sacrifice what you have on behalf of those you serve. 
That's how authority works in the kingdom of God. That's what the centurion's faith can teach us about true authority. What does this faith show us about Jesus? Well, there's another thing the centurion and the leper have in common. They share the belief that Jesus is not only powerful enough to restore them, but also that he will be willing to use that power for them. When they come to him, they're assuming not only that he can do it, but that he will, that he might want to, that this is a thing that he might actually be willing to do. In other words, it's not just the authority of Jesus that they trust in, it's the goodness of Jesus. And his goodness is inseparable from his authority. Scottish divine Henry Skugel, in his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, writes that all Jesus' miraculous works were instances of his goodness as well as his power, benefiting those on whom they were bestowed as much as they amazed his observers. He didn't just go around demonstrating his power, he went around doing good, driven by goodness, a desire to serve. When Jesus looked at the centurion, maybe he saw a man who was living a life that in a small way reflected the life that he had come to live and to lay down. He saw a man who was trying to do what Jesus himself would do to a much greater degree. The centurion humbled himself, definitely, but Jesus himself had humbled himself to an unimaginable degree in the Incarnation. He had taken upon himself, as Paul says, the form of a servant. And that was just to become one of us. In order to go to the cross, he would lower himself even more for our sake. He was willing to humble himself to do good to his servants. The centurion asked Jesus to save his servant. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to save his servants. Jesus uses his divine authority for our service, for our benefit, to do us good. And no one who understands can ever begrudge Jesus his authority because he has used it for our good. He's used it to benefit us. Whatever authority, therefore, he entrusts to us, we must strive to use it the way that he uses authority. We must serve others. We must do good to them. And don't imagine that when Jesus has used his authority the way that he is, that he would be content for you to use what he has given you merely to enrich or to serve yourself. Google makes a further point about Jesus and his authority. He didn't use it to pursue his own interests or his own benefits. He used it for others. Fascinating, he says, that Jesus at the wedding in Cana when they run out of wine would use his power to make wine. But the same Jesus, when he was in the wilderness, desperately starving, would not use his power to turn stone into bread. He would not use his power to sustain his life, as it were, but he would use it so that people might feast at the wedding. And Jesus was so gracious, Google says, and divine was the nature of his spirit that he allowed others such legitimate pleasures as he himself thought it best 
to abstain from. He frequently supplied their pressing necessities, but also their smaller, less considerable wants. Jesus used his authority, not for himself, but for others, and to give them the desires of their hearts. That's what authority is made for. That is power in God's eyes. But this text needs to be for us more than just a self-help lesson on how to use authority. Because what it really is, is an invitation to marvel at Jesus. Just as Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion, we must marvel at Jesus and what he's used his power to do. The faith of the centurion leads Jesus not only to praise him, but also to give a preview of things to come. He draws back the curtain. He alludes to what will happen in Acts 11, Gentile inclusion in the covenant promises. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, he says. He's talking about you, Gentiles. He means you. Many will come and recline at table with the patriarchs, the one my covenant promises were made to. If you're reclining at Abraham's table, you are an inheritor, a fellow heir of the promise that was made to him. It's not surprising. From the beginning, Abraham's promise was that through him the nations would be blessed. But then there's also a warning. Jesus warns the physical sons of the kingdom who think that they ought to be at the table by right will be thrown into outer darkness. There you see a preview of the destruction of the temple, a preview of the problem of Israel's unbelief that the Apostle Paul wrestles with in Romans 11. He's talking here to everyone who believes that they can recline at table with Abraham without kneeling at the feet of Jesus. The gifts of that table are for those who share Abraham's faith. And at that table, you will sit side by side, a leper on one side, a centurion on the other, people who in this life you wouldn't have touched, people who in this life you wouldn't have entered into the house of. But it won't bother you, because if you're at that table, you will have already realized that you yourself are unclean and unworthy, that you're one of them. You will have cried out to Jesus, I'm unclean, I'm not worthy, my house isn't good enough for you to enter in. Jesus will say to you, I make you clean, I make you worthy, I will build you a house. Let it be done for you as you have believed. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.